0: This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. Tim Termunde is the CEO and President of Tega Gold Corp., trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF. On the OTC in the US. Take a Gold Corp. is a mineral exploration company focusing on gold in eastern Saskatchewan, Canada. The company's flagship project is the Fisher property, located adjacent to SSR Mining CB Gold Operation property and approximately 1.5 kilometers from the Santoy mine itself. The Fisher property is bisected by the Santoy shear zone along its entire length approximately 18 kilometers, and the nearby Santoy Mine is currently producing high-grade gold from this structure. The Fisher property is under option to SSR Mining, where they are undertaking significant exploration, including drilling, with the intent of locating gold deposits for development into potential reserves. Tim, welcome to the program. Give us an overview of Taiga, please.
1: Taiga Gold was spun out from parent company Eagle Plains Resources in April of 2018. And the reason for the spin out was just going back a little bit further. Eagle Plains is a prospect generator, project generator type company. We do research, usually stake our own claims or acquire them. Fairly base levels from other prospectors. And then we work on a portfolio of projects. And if one project seems to sort of rise above all the rest and becomes more of a story on its own, then in the past... We have separated that project from Eagle Plains, spun it out into a separate company, essentially dividended shares of this new company to our Eagle Plains shareholders so that they're along for the ride investment-wise. And then we separate that project and make a new company around it. And that's what we've done with the Fisher Project in Northern Saskatchewan. We separated that from Eagle Plains into a shell called Taiga Gold. Gold Corp. And we've been working as Taiga here for the last couple of years. So the Fisher project is significant in that it's located directly adjacent to this CB Gold operation in northern Saskatchewan, which is run by SSR Mining, who were formerly Silver Standard. Everybody's heard of Silver Standard. Silver Standard bought out Claude Resources in 2015. Essentially Claude's primary asset was the CB Gold operation. So SSR now bought CB. Soon after they purchased Claude Resources, we ended up in negotiations with them for our property, the Fisher Project, which is right next door, adjacent to the CB Gold operation. So we ended up in a deal with SSR a few years ago, and they have been essentially working the Fisher property quite aggressively. They found in the first year or so that the structures that host the mineralization at the Santoy deposit, which is part of the CB Gold operation, the structure that hosts gold at Santoy goes right down into our property and actually extends the entire length of our property, which is about 20-plus plus. Kilometers strike length. So they've been working on this called the Santoy Shear for the last few years. So far, they've spent roughly $10 million on it and are continuing to work it right now. And as we speak, there's two drills on the property turning and have been for the last month and will be for the next month. So they've got a big project going on our property and we're sort of along for the ride. They take all the risk, they pay all the cost, and we're standing by working on our other projects at the same time.
0: And you've just added 384 hectares, have you not?
1: Interestingly, we don't just have the Fisher project. We've got three other projects in that area called the Leland, the Orchid, and the Sam. And so we're working the other projects while SSR is working the Fisher property. We just completed the financing last week. We just closed a grossly oversold finance. We initially announced that we were going to do a $540,000 financing, and the support for it was so overwhelming that we ended up expanding the financing. We put out another news release a few days after we announced and said that we're increasing the financing. And when the dust settled, we actually raised $1.4 million for Taiga. And we're using that money now for GNA purposes and to advance the other projects while Fisher's the cat being advanced sort of on autopilot by SSR. So one of the moves we made is on our Orchid project. We've been watching for quite a few years for area around Orchid to open up, and it has opened up in the last couple of months, and we were able to acquire a couple of very high-grade showings near the versary showing now, part of the Orchid property. And it's one we've had our eye on for a long time, but we've never been able to get at. So we're very happy that we we're successful in that staking. We've basically improved and enhanced the Orchid project. We plan on doing work this summer with an aim to move it to Georgia ready status and we plan on doing the same thing with our leland property too given the strong treasury we have now we have the ability to move things along on our own while ssr is doing their stuff
0: the Orchid property has some very good old numbers from work that was done 25 years ago, right?
1: You know, that's one of our big demos as a prospect generator is to use old data to come up with a new geological model or a new story or put the old data in a new context. And really what's significant about that entire region now is the revelations that SSR and Cloud Resources before them have come up with the controls of the gold mineralization at Santoy and CB and how it's associated with big structures in the area. What makes Orchid particularly interesting is that it is on or near the very same structure that they're mining at Santoy. It's called the Taberner Fault. And the Taberner Fault actually goes to the north uh, thousands of kilometers and to the south about a thousand kilometers down into South Dakota. And it's thought to be associated with the homestake deposit as well, which is, as everybody's heard of the homestake, but it's a giant gold resource of 40 million ounces that was mined for years. Recent geological thinking is that there is a focus of mineralization along the tabiner or splays to the tabiner and that's what the orchid property basically taps into and so that's the focus of our work is to see if there are mineralized splays coming off the tabiner the entire geology of that area is actually quite interesting and it's within the trans hudson orogeny which is a giant belt of rocks that go from the south of uh, the Homestake Deposit, wrap all the way up and around through the L'Orange Gold Belt, the CB Santoy Gold Belt, over into the Flon VMS Camp, and up into northern Manitoba and further along. It's a very well-endowed belt of rocks, and people are just starting to realize that now, and, and we've been positioned there for quite a while, so we're starting to see other players sort of pick up on this, and other people are moving in there and working with us, but we've sort of had the pick of a litter for the last few years, and we're enjoying that status right now.
0: We're sort of seeing the best non-parallel Parabolic gold market that I've ever seen. We've had great markets in the past, but they've been straight up and then straight down. This one seems very sustainable and exciting. How is this affecting the mood of your team and the sector in general with regard to shareholders? And by the way, I am a shareholder of Taiga.
1: Overall, Ellis, an overwhelming sense of relief for me. (laughs) And for many people in the industry, we've been in about a nine-year bear market that started in about 2011. Some could argue it started in 2008 with the global financial crisis, but 2011 was not a bad year for mining, but it was very short-lived, maybe eight months of relief then. And then since then, it's been quite dreary. However, for companies like us that rely on getting ground and getting ground cheap, having stuff become available, it's been really instrumental in us moving forward is that we were never financially distressed enough that we had to shutter our doors or anything anything. We are able to stay aggressive and do a lot of research and just about every staking opening in Saskatchewan in the last five years we've participated in. And so we've seen it as a great time you know, to shop fire sales. We've certainly seized that opportunity and I hope now that we get to benefit from it.
0: Let's talk about the share structure of your company.
1: With the recent financing we did, we're about 79 million shares out, fully diluted, in the high 90s. We've got over a million five in cash in the bank right now and really don't have a lot of pressure on us to make commitments with SSR. They're spending all the money right now doing all the heavy lifting. The money we spend right now is optional to us. When we decide we want to push harder on other projects, move them along quicker, we have the financial capability to do that. The share structure is quite tight. We know who most of the big shareholders are because they started out as Eagle Plains shareholders. Eagle Plains has been around for just about 25 years, so we've got to know a lot of our shareholders We're friends with a lot of our shareholders, and it's quite easy to find out where the big blocks of shares are. We talk to them on a regular basis. We're quite happy with the share position now. We'll see when this financing, the four-month hold comes off, what kind of liquidity or what kind of market activity will happen when those shares come free trading. But we're watching that data, and we're keeping an eye on it and have strategies lined up. To address
0: that. Well, Tim, it's great to speak with you today. I look forward to more developments as they come along. Thank you so much for joining me today in the
1: program. Thank you very much, Ellis.
0: I've been speaking with Tim Termonde, the president and CEO of Tega Gold Corp., trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Find the company on the web at TegaGold.com. That's T-A-I-G-A Gold.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Cole, the President and CEO of EMX Royalty Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange and on the New York Stock Exchange as EMX. EMX is a precious and base metals royalty company whose investors are provided with discovery, development, and commodity price optionality, while limiting exposure to the risk inherent to operating companies. EMX has a sizable global portfolio of assets and has currently over $70 million in the treasury and no debt. Dave, welcome back to the program. Ellis, always happy to be here with you. You've had an amazing 12 months and you don't stop. You have a couple of news releases out recently. Let's talk about environmental reclamation. You've acquired a company out of Delaware that's connected with Alexco.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating deal, isn't it? So the story here is really about people. You know, we've always been a people first company, acquire the right people, build the right business. And this is a great example. So Jim Harrington is a genius aqueous chemist, and he was embedded inside of Alexco a mining company working in the Yukon. And Alexco had a troubled asset with lots of legacy environmental problems. And they came in and they did an absolutely fabulous job of cleaning up that district and unlocking the mineral value of that mining operation. That's a now profitable silver mine working in the Yukon, employing people. They made the First Nations people happy. They made the Canadian government happy. They made people that are employed and contributing to the economy of the region happy. Did a fantastic job. And so inside Alexco, this environmental company grew and they started doing additional work around the western united states and western canada and they decided that they wanted to go public that the mining company wanted to continue working on mining ventures and the environmental company wanted to go off and spread their wings as an environmental company with a strong track record so we funded them to take them private and buy them out of Alexco. And so the environmental group is renamed Encero. So it's a fabulous deal for us because we put in 3.7 million Canadian dollars. We get paid a 6% coupon rate on the preferred share. We get double principal payback after year six. So they pay back our initial investment twice plus all the interest. We also get 7.5% of the company in common shares, so we're now a large shareholder in the company moving forward. And those income aspects are important to us because, as you know, we're trying to populate the top of our pyramid and enhance immediate cash flow into the company is one of our priorities. But then also we have a strategic alliance To combine our economic geology skill sets with their environmental cleanup skill sets and look for opportunities similar to the Keno Hill operation where they unlock the substantial mineral value by fixing the environmental problem. So, we're looking for opportunities like that around Western United States and Western Canada with them. And we have a short list of some really interesting ideas there. So, we think the synergies are just fantastic.
0: So, let me see if I have this figured out. Essentially, this does fit your royalty model because you've got income coming in perpetually and you own part of a new business. Business. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Plus, we're going to go out and create some substantial value by cleaning up historic districts with fantastic mineral potential. Because many exploration and mining companies avoid districts that have significant environmental legacy problems because they don't want to become a liable party by coming in doing a little bit of exploration work on an asset. And then the government says, hey, wait a minute, you were the last company to work on this project. It has a big environmental liability. You're now liable. So they'll just ignore the ones that have the worst problems. In this particular case, those will be the ones we'll target specifically because we'll have the expertise to be able to handle that. It's a very interesting model, and it's a great way to build rapport with the governmental agencies, with local communities, because you're cleaning up an eyesore and a potential pollutant source, in addition to creating value moving forward to produce the metals that
0: we need. This also fits potentially your project generator model, because you find new opportunities that you can eventually vend off and still have a residual piece of.
2: Right up our alley, right up our
0: alley. What does this mean potentially for areas In California that have a legacy of destroyed property and the political environment is terrible here. Can you come into a state as big and as mineral rich as California and say, listen, we can really help you out here and bring money to the community? Is that in your calculus or no, Dave?
2: California doesn't rate at the top of the list of our preferred destinations for obvious reasons, but because of this unique relationship with the environmental company, we can put states such as California on the list to look at select opportunities that are in just the right place. So long as that we're confident that we can have local support for the ultimate job creation through the mineral property development.
0: What does it mean for artisanal endeavors in Latin America? These artisanal miners, hardworking folks out there
2: trying to make a living by using old techniques for panning for gold or digging and using rudimentary metallurgical techniques to extract gold and other minerals, sometimes can create a big footprint and a bit of an environmental mess because they're not well organized in a modern industrial way with proper environmental engineering. So they can create problems that have to be cleaned up. But we're not specifically targeting those areas. Those areas can be socially challenging because of the importance of all those small little mines contributing to a local e- economy. And usually it's best to leave those alone. But if, if they're ones that have been abandoned and there's a legacy issue, then those would be ones that we would look at.
0: I'm not sure if you can disclose this right now on the radio, but are there some areas you're targeting right now in the world?
2: Yeah. So we have a shortlist. We married the shortlist that inside of EMX with the shortlist that and Sero have from their work going around looking at environmentally impaired mining regions in the west and we've prioritized that list and there's some very interesting prospects on that list you bet you hear me talk alice about optionality and the importance of optionality in business and that's one of the beautiful aspects of royalties is the embedded optionality so the embedded optionality in this deal is just fantastic we get immediate cash flow from the coupon rate we get double our investment back we get the share ownership in the successful environmental company as they go on and grow and we have the opportunity to utilize their expertise and marry with ours looking for new opportunities Great value. So, just a fabulous deal all around, very synergistic.
0: You can't even speculate on the potential upside of this. It could be anything. That's correct. We could unlock a major porphyry
2: deposit, come into an area that previously was not drilled and explored for reasons that I discussed. We fix the environmental problem, we get the drill permits, bada bing, you never know what you're going to find.
0: Let's take a look at Norway now. What have you done there?
2: Well, Ellis, believe it or not, this is a fact. We are the largest mineral rights holder in the country of Norway of any company. We have been very aggressive there. Within Fennoscandia, there are six smelters, there's a number of mills and active mines, I believe there's 17 active mines in Fennoscandia now. It's a quite active region of the world with excellent geology, similar geology to Canada, for example, which we all know is a robust mining producer. We've come in and used our geological expertise combined with the governmental databases available from the very good Norwegian Geological Survey. And we've acquired large tracts of mining licenses from the Norwegian government on a variety of different types of mineral systems, including gold properties, lead, zinc, silver properties, and we're specifically targeting the copper, cobalt, nickel, plus or minus platinum group element ones because of the obvious good aspect of those being battery metal projects and commodities that we like very much. We've been aggressive in that for years now in Sweden as well, and that has resulted in more deal flow. As we shop these assets with the geological models that we've developed to an industry that's hungry to acquire discovery opportunities, particularly in the battery metal space, but everybody loves gold, and we continue to see good deal flow as we sell these projects on executing our bread and butter business model, prospect generation, keeping royalties.
0: I want to discuss with you, if you don't mind, the speculative aspect of our business And then the brick and mortar hard cash aspect of our business. And you've done everything that you can to de-risk with regard to shareholders. The PGM space in the speculative area is nebulous. We really don't know what's going to happen with regard to investing in pure speculation, but you're interested in deal flow that's going to provide hard cash.
2: We're specifically targeting cash flowing assets to populate the top of our pyramid with the money we have in the bank. And just to review real quick for listeners that are not aware we make strategic investments we buy royalties and we grow royalties organically through this prospect generation process that we're talking about and one of our strategic investments recently had a huge payout and that put us in a position where we have no debt we have 81 million dollars canadian in working capital and we are redeploying these monies the bulk of that is cash by the way we're redeploying those monies into other strategic investments royalty purchases and i'm specifically targeting cash flowing assets. And that's one of the good aspects of the deal we did with Encero because there's an immediate coupon rate on those preferred shares.
0: And you have performed admirably for your shareholders, if you don't mind me saying, especially in the last year.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much. I believe we have 5X the stock price in the last four years.
0: Dave, it's always great to speak with you. I look forward to chatting with you in person sometime in the near future. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Ellis. Happy to chat with you. I've been speaking with David Cole, the president and CEO of EMX Royalty Corp trading on the TSX Venture Exchange and on the New York Stock Exchange as EMX. Go to the company's website, emxroyalty.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
3: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Evans, geologist and manager of operations for Recon Africa, trading as RECO on the TSX Venture Exchange and LGDOF in the United States. Mr. Evans is an energy industry leader with a combined 35 years of experience with Exxon, Landmark Graphics, and Halliburton. In his last position, Mr. Evans served as vice president of Halliburton's integrated asset management and technical consulting organizations, where he grew production, from 20,000 to over 100,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day, creating the equivalent of a mid-cap upstream oil company. Recon Africa is a junior oil and gas company engaged in the development of the newly discovered Kambango Sedimentary Basin in northeast Namibia, where the company holds a 90% working interest in petroleum licenses, comprising approximately 6.3 million contiguous acres. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ellis. Tell us about Recon Africa.
4: Africa is a small junior exploration company that has been involved with Northeast Namibia and Southern Africa for five or six years now and they have locked up essentially an entire basin in the northeast corner of Namibia which is pretty rare for a small company like this this is normally something you see the major ore companies do but it is a very prospective basin and really exciting and I've just joined recently after retiring from Halliburton
0: you retired from Halliburton you've got a lot of experience 35 years years worth of experience with Halliburton and then Exxon mm-hmm. and you retired. So what brought you back into the world of oil and gas? Well,
4: it's kind of in my blood I started my career at Exxon, a dozen years there, then joined Halliburton, working with mainly unconventionals. But essentially, I've known Craig Stankey, who's the principal of Recon Africa, for a long time. And he's been very successful, we've helped him before. And when I saw what he was doing with Recon Africa, it's like, wow, how often do you get to look into a brand new basin, when it hasn't really been fully developed yet? Not many of them left in the world. Both my experience and with Craig and the companies he's worked with, and the exciting nature of the play. I'm a geologist. Tough to refer
0: Now, your experience with the Permian Shale Basin in the U.S., that sort of experience actually helps you in Africa. How are these similar?
4: Surface level, in a sense, they're both basins of Permian age, right? Right geologists we know that there's things that happen globally that are tied together in the Permian there were several basins that formed that have turned out to be quite petroleum rich and well suited for conventional and unconventional resources. I've spent the last decade as part of the Halliburton's organization kind of providing integrated, integrated projects one of our big focuses was the Permian Basin in the U.S. We always like to say there's no two shale plays are alike which is definitely true but there are characteristics of shale plays that transfer from basin to basin and I see a lot of those same characteristics in this Namibian Permian Basin that you can find in the Permian Basin of the United States.
0: This is a major style play, one that's held by a small company, Recon Africa. How unusual is that, and what are the benefits of this?
4: It is unusual for a company of this size to have a play this large. This is all over 6 million acres, and essentially, Recon Africa controls the entire footprint of the basin. It is something normally you seek the, the majors able to do, but it's a testament to, I think, the geologists that worked with Recon Africa to identify it and get to the government of Namibia with their proposals and worked very well with the government to keep the acreage intact. They have been very diligent in putting together both an expiration plan and then looking at all the logistics that are associated with it. In many cases, the fact that you're a small company means that you can move quickly and take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. And certainly, Recon Africa did that with this basin.
0: We have spoken with Bill Cathy prior to this interview. He's a large part of your technical team. You work with him on a regular basis. Please explain your role, if you don't mind. What's your specific role with the company? Well, my
4: role is essentially two things. One is to pull all the interpretations together and finalize drilling locations, and then to begin the monetization of the play. So that means that we finalize the locations, get permits in place, environmental and everything taken care of. And we've purchased our drilling rig. So we purchased a Crown 750 through Henderson Drilling, and we are in the process now of refitting that rig. It's never drilled a foot before. It's been in storage, so it's a nice brand new rig. Getting it ready to move from Houston to Namibia and start a three-well drilling program in June of this year. My role is, having come out of two very operationally-oriented companies, Exxon and Halliburton, is to make sure that we are on time, drill these wells safely and on budget, and get all the data we need to further the play.
0: You mentioned monetizing the play, Scott. You've got a brand new drill rig heading over to Namibia. You find oil. Does that mean you go into production? Is it a pilot well? How does that work?
4: Well, the first well is always, like I say, the most important well in the basin. And this will actually be the first well in this basin. Now, we do have offset wells. We have one well to the west that actually shows the Permian section that we're interested in. So we know the section's there. We know as we move it into the basin that it's going to thicken. So the first well is really important, and we're going to get all the data we can out of it. We're going to be obviously taking cores, rock samples. We're going to be logging the wells with modern logging tools, and we're going to be looking at that well very closely, because then that's going to set the pace for the additional wells. We have several locations already permitted, already ready to go, and based on what we learned from the first well, that's where we'll, we'll then move to the subsequent wells. And once we've done that first program, then the intention would be, given success, we would put together a development plan and begin to start truly producing oil and gas and monetizing the play.
0: What's the time frame with an operation such as this for all of what you just described?
4: Like I say, we're targeting to start the first well at the end of June of this year. I would expect that each well, we're going to see some things we haven't seen before. So let's say we have two months for each well. So by the end of the year, we should have the program in our pocket and know exactly how to develop the play.
0: With all that you're doing and the size of the play for a junior resource company such as Recon Africa, it's a small company with a very large footprint in Namibia. How does the valuation of the company change potentially when you begin to discover and produce oil?
4: Well, the way I like to look at these things is using a term, what I would call de-risking. So what we're doing is taking a new play And every well we drill, we eliminate risk with the end game of being able to produce hydrocarbons commercially. So I guess from a perspective of a small company, as we reduce that risk, then the value of the company is going to increase as the value of the acreage increases. And I have every expectation that as we move forward, that the risking will be straightforward, and then that we'll be able to grow the company and become very focused on the best parts of the play, just as we've seen in the other Permian basins.
0: Now, you're considered an expert in developing unconventional resources. That is your specialty. How will this be applied, and what do you expect to find in Namibia?
4: So let me address your question in two parts. One is unconventional play, which you've alluded to but also the fact that we do see the potential for a conventional play here in northeast Namibia as well in the Kavango Basin. So from the Permian Basin standpoint, we see the Karoo formation, in fact a shale play down in South Africa, as having significant unconventional potential in our area in particular, but in other parts of Southern Africa. The Kavango Basin, which is the basin that we've identified, has a lot of burial history and geologic similarities to other Permian basins around the world, such that we think that this unconventional play has a really high chance of success. So we're developing our evaluation program for these drill wells to make sure that we get all the data we need to understand an unconventional play, and then ultimately how we're going to develop it. We do see, however, that there is potential for conventional plays, because in this northeast corner of Namibia, you also start to see the intersection of some of the Rift Valley plays that are more well known to the north and east of us in Africa. So as part of a rift valley, there are conventional plays that we think also have a chance for success here in the Cavango Basin.
0: With a basin this size, if you're successful, how has this changed the calculus for supply in the region?
4: Well, it's really interesting because the nearest sources of either oil or gas are generally going to be offshore when you go over to Angola and follow that up the coast. There's offshore Potential in Namibia as well, don't get me wrong. So this area, we think logistically and infrastructure-wise, is well-suited to support the development of oil or gas. And it's an area that I think will significantly benefit by these discoveries. The infrastructure is ready. We see a a really good well-trained population that's worked in mining for a long time, but it's a long ways to the other oil and gas plays, either offshore Angola, which is where the current activity of proven resources are, or further up the coast. There's obviously offshore activity in Namibia as well, and there's a lot of progress there, but having an onshore basin like this for both oil or gas I think will be a real boom to the country and to anybody involved with it.
0: What will the majors like Halliburton and Exxon be doing? Will they be looking at you during the course of the next couple of years while you develop the resource?
4: We've already been contacted by one major, but there has been a history over the years of many of the majors coming through this part of the world and doing exploration. The big companies always have really strong, active global groups that are looking for the next new plays, And so I'm sure that not just the one that's contacted it, but others are following. But it's incumbent on Recon Africa to prove this up, and that's what we're going to do.
0: Well, Scott, it's been fantastic chatting with you today. I look forward to more conversations in the future. Safe travels. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks a lot. This has been fun. I've been speaking with Scott Evans, geologist and manager of operations for Recon Africa, trading as RECO on the TSX Venture Exchange and LGDOF in the United States go to the company's website, ReconAfrica.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Suda the president and CEO of Gold Terra Resource Corp. Trading under the symbol YGT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the United States as TRXXF, Gold Terra owns a 100% interest in the Yellowknife City Gold Project, encompassing 790 square kilometers of contiguous land within 12 kilometers of the city of Yellowknife. The project is located in the prolific Yellowknife Greenstone Belt, covering 70 kilometers of strike length along the main mineralized break in proximity to the Former high grade con and giant gold mines, which have produced over 14 million ounces of gold. The Yellowknife City Gold Project is close to vital infrastructure, including all season roads, air transportation, service providers, hydroelectric power and skilled tradespeople. Dave, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you with us today.
5: It's a pleasure to be on the program. Thanks for having me.
0: You have results from three holes from the winter 2020 drill campaign at Sam Auto South, and I've got to be honest with you, I didn't expect any results this early and maybe from a different part of your project. So tell us about what's happening at Sam Auto South.
5: So as we've discussed, we've been working hard at drilling on Sam Auto and Sam Auto South. We've got a 10,000-meter campaign that's underway. We're almost halfway through that campaign. Of course, we've been waiting with bated breath to see the results from several holes, which we saw Visual Gold in, and we didn't send out a news release with effect to what those holes looked like and how excited we are to see the results. Oftentimes, assaying core with Visible Gold can take a little bit longer, and so we've been on the edge of our seat, and we want to get our shareholders and our investors Some value. As conference season ramped up, we certainly wanted to get out with some results. We were able to get three holes back from assay labs. Not all of the holes that we got back are the ones that we were looking for with regards to the VG that we were expecting to have assayed. However, we're very excited by the fact that one of the holes that came back, we found an unexpected result, and that result was tremendous in boosting our confidence for the overall expansion of the resource at Sam Auto and Sam Auto South. What we found was a new mineralized structure that was drilled 25 meters of 1.39 grams per tonne gold, which is a tremendous hole for us. It's very near to what has been previously the best hole at Sam Auto South, which was 27 metres of just over 2 grams. What makes this hole special is that it is very consistent throughout. If you take a narrower cut, there's about 10 metres of 2.4 8 grams per tonne gold, but there's no spiky 10 gram or higher intercepts within that 25 metres. It's very uniform and it's exemplary of what we like about Sam Auto. And so it's that predictable new mineralized structure that we now get to chase and hopefully add to our resource. So it was an unexpected bonus, and everything that we're excited about and still waiting
0: for is yet to come. Well, 25 meters is not necessarily a small value, and as you mentioned, it's consistent grade in an area with amazing infrastructure, it's easy to get to, and the cost of production ultimately will not be exorbitant.
5: As we've been saying to those who are naysayers of Sam Auto because they call it low-grade, we've been saying when you're next to town, low-grade is high-grade. And this hole over 25 meters has at 1.39 grams per ton gold is a higher value than the overall resource on Sam Auto itself. So we're very happy with this intercept and we plan to chase down this zone as we continue.
0: What can we look for in the next couple of months for those that are just joining our story for the very first time, Dave?
5: Well, there's a lot of excitement. I mean, we saw the stock have a really nice move today on the first three holes that we've got back from what could be a 40-hole campaign this winter at Sam Auto. If you think about the fact that we've released under 10% of the core assays that we expect from this target. We've got a lot to look forward to, and we expect news to be flowing consistently all the way through April. And with that great-looking core that we've been expecting, we're very excited about what's next to come around the corner.
0: What would you say to our audience, Dave, for those that are looking for opportunity right now, and clearly a great gold market? We haven't seen this kind of market in many, many years.
5: We've got a rising gold price, and you've just seen the first three of probably 35 to 40 holes. So you haven't missed the boat yet, but you certainly see what can happen with a rising gold price and with good results coming from a great target, like Sam Otto at Yellowknife Gold Terra.
0: Dave Suda, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Safe travels.
5: Thanks very much, Ellis.
0: I've been speaking with David Suda, the president and CEO of Gold Terra Resource Corp., trading under the symbol YGT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the United States as TRXXF. Visit the company's website, goldterracorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
3: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
0: Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations, culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. News just out, you've commenced your winter diamond drilling program at your high-grade flagship Moore Uranium project in Saskatchewan. Pretty exciting. Tell us about it.
6: Yeah, so this is a very important drill program for us. As we've discussed in previous interviews, we've, over the last, Six to eight months, spent a lot of time doing new geological modeling, reinterpretation of what's called the basement rocks. This is a new geological setting that we're now focused on below the Athabasca Basin sandstone and the unconformity. The rock type that most of the notable recent high-grade discoveries have been made in, including Arrow and NextGen's property and PLS Vision, the Griffin deposit with Denison, who's our largest strategic shareholder and a strategic partner of ours. So at our flagship Moore Lakes, over the last few years, we've been drilling with most of the target in the sandstone or at the unconformity. Just in the last program in 2019, we drilled some exploratory holes into the basement rock, and we had success in one of the last holes where we drilled our highest grade intercept uranium mineralization in the basement rocks, which included 2.3% over two and a half meters. We weren't able to follow that up as it was one of the last holes in the program. So the first target that we're going to be drill testing with this 2,500 meter, 7 Nine-hole drill program is going to be at that East Maverick zone following up that high-grade zone that we intersected in the 2019 drill program. It's opened down plunge again with all the new geological modeling and the geophysics that we carried out last year. It appears that we've nicked what is potentially a much larger, hopefully higher-grade zone at depth, uh, so we'll be drill testing that. And then we have two other targets along Stripe on this main Maverick corridor. Again, this is a long four-kilometer corridor that's only really been systematically drilled for about two kilometers. And most of that drilling has been focused in the sandstone and down to the unconformity. So open along strike and a depth. The two other zones that we're going to be drilling, the goose and the viper zones are about 500 meters and 1.5 kilometers northeast of the main Maverick zone, the high grade zone that we've been delineating over the last several years. So very good drill plan in place. Exciting to get back to go and discover additional high grade mineralization at the project. And we're confident that we're going to be finding more with this program.
0: When you mention high grade, I think it's important for our audience to know that this particular area of the Athabasca Basin is typically known for grades that are 10x above most other areas in the world where you can find uranium. Am I right?
6: Yeah, it's the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. Some people put it the Saudi Arabia of uranium, 10 to 20 times the average grade. And that's an important part of our story is the high grade nature of these deposits that we're going after. That ultimately, when you're valuing a project or when you're mining it, that increases the underlying value given that on a per ton basis, this is some of the most valuable rock type of mineral deposit out there. So, even in a lower price commodity environment, and we know that it's been a tough uranium market, uranium prices have stayed low for a period of time here, you can still generate significant returns for investors and shareholders by making these discoveries. And that's point in cases, next gen fission in Hathor, which was ultimately acquired by Rio Tinto in a bidding war between Cameco and Rio. These companies. Companies were successful in making high-grade discoveries during periods of time when the commodity price of uranium price was relatively low, and we saw what happened with those companies through that discovery process. And that's really what we're trying to emulate here at Sky Harbor is being that next big high-grade discovery story. We think we have a good shot here with this upcoming drill program. But it's also important to note that at our more project, we do have high-grade uranium that's already been discovered. We have grades as high as 21% U308 over a meter and. Hat half in a, a drill hole from a program we carried out in 2017. So we do have high-grade zones of mineralization. We're looking to find more, and in particular with this program, we're looking to test uh, prospective basement rocks.
0: When might we see some results from this drilling program, Jordan?
6: Well, we just started. We're going to try to get through the drill program as quickly and efficiently as possible, but there'll be updates from the field. And the good thing with uranium exploration and drilling is you can get an indication of high-grade mineralization early on in the program through. A gamma probe or scintillometer, which measures radioactivity in the course. Look out for news flow over the coming weeks and months. And it's a program that, like I said, is pivotal for us, uh, given that we have refined these new targets in the basement rock. And we have good reason to believe there's a lot more mineralization to be found at depth in these basement rocks.
0: You're not alone there in the Athabasca. You have some significant joint venture partners, don't you?
6: Yeah. As you're well aware, we act as a prospect generator and we have several other projects that we've optioned out and have partners funding exploration on, two of which over on the west side of the Athabasca Basin by Naxjan and Fission are Preston projects currently under option to Arano, which is again France's largest uranium mining and nuclear state-run company. They have an option to earn earning up to 70% by spending up to $8 million over a six-year period. They're about halfway through that. They're planning a field program, which will commence shortly at that project, big geophysical program followed up by a planned drill program later in the year. And then our other partner company, Azencourt, just announced commencement of a 2,500-meter drill program at our East Preston project. We also get some cash payments this year from them as a part of the earn-in option. So with those two programs soon to be underway, well, Azencourt currently underway and Orano soon to be underway, then our program at our flagship, Moore Project, you have three simultaneous programs, exploration drilling programs that'll be carried out over the next several months, 5,000 Combined drilling and over two and a half million in combined exploration expenditures, the bulk of which funded by partner companies. So multiple irons in the fire. A lot of company-specific news, flow and catalyst. Again, strong discovery potential through multiple drill programs. I think the timing of this news flow over the next several months will be good.
0: With generals looking at the resource sector or even biotech or anything right now, why should they pay attention necessarily, members of our audience, to a uranium story?
6: I think the big thing right now is, again, where we're at in the cycle. It's been a tough uranium market since Fukushima, since 2011. We have seen that trend reverse, though, and you know I've highlighted this in previous interviews. Late 2016, I think we saw the bottom put in. Not so dissimilar to what we saw in the early mid 2000s consolidation. Once that bottom had been put in, I think we're in that phase right now, but I think we're going to be coming out of it. And there's a couple of near term potential catalysts in recent developments worth noting. First and foremost, we've seen the significant supply side response to this low price environment. We've seen major production curtailment, project deferrals. Cameco, as we've discussed, has shut down their largest mine, MacArthur River. They have to buy material, buy uranium in the market, a big chunk of that having to be sourced in the spot market to meet their delivery requirements because they shut down production. Cameco just came out with their annual financial statements last week, which were quite telling and some notable positive market commentary, including the announcement that they have to acquire over 20 million pounds of material in 2020 to meet these contract deliveries. And they've explicitly stated that a majority of that will likely have to be bought in the spot market. We saw in January. Very low spot market volumes, which shows that the market's tightening up. So, Cameco having to buy that kind of material in the spot market is going to put significant upward pressure on the price. What was interesting about it was Tim Gitzel's comment about their contract pipeline. They stated that their contract pipeline negotiations right now is the most robust they've seen it since 2011. And I think that that's an important note from the financials and from the release, because one of the biggest issues that we've had in the market over the last several years has been a lack of new utility contracting. The fuel buyers at these utility companies have not been in the market, and there's been several reasons for that, including the Section 232 petition in the U.S. and the Subsequent Nuclear Fuel Working Group, which has basically sidelined most U.S. nuclear utilities, which account for over a quarter of global demand. But we're now starting to see that change. As Cameco pointed out, we're starting to see utilities come back in have to start renegotiating these contracts. So we know that a lot of the existing legacy contracts are rolling off and that they're going to have to come back to the market. So it's good to see that sort of commentary out of Cameco. And then just a few days ago, we saw a budget proposal out of the U.S. that included $150 million a year for the creation of a U.S. uranium reserve. This is a part of that Section 232 and subsequent nuclear fuel working group process. So we're finally starting to see some resolution to that. And that's important because, again, that will clear the air for U.S. nuclear utilities going forward to come back to the market. I will note, too, that earlier in the year, Canada and the U.S. signed a joint action plan to collaborate on strategic minerals, including uranium. So there could be a benefit to Canada here. But I think most importantly, it's good to see some resolution from this uncertainty created by the Section 232 and in, in Nuclear Fuel Working Group, and we're now getting that. So a combination of factors, again, decreasing supply. We know that demand's growing globally. What'll be interesting to keep an eye out for are the development of these advanced nuclear technologies and SMR, small modular reactors. As we talked about in the past with the recent climate change protests, I think nuclear will play a more important role going forward in that climate change debate and it is the only baseload source of clean electricity. And then more recently, we're starting to see the market rebalance. We're starting to see utility interest come back, and that's the most important driver for the price going forward is having these utilities come back to the market, having the market come back to some normality. And as Kamiko highlighted in their recent financials, that's happening as we speak.
0: Jordan, tell us about the share structure of the company before we sign off.
6: Yeah, so there's currently 75 million shares issued and outstanding trades at about an 11 to 12 million dollar Canadian market cap, relatively low valuation. You can see that I've been purchasing shares in the market recently. I've added significantly to my position. Uh, I just think the value proposition right now is stronger than ever given everything that we have going on in the field and the timing with the market. 2019 was a difficult year for uranium companies and I think they're due for a rebound here in 2020.
0: It's always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program, Jordan. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S.
3: If you're a principal in a publicly traded company seeking exposure to our listening audience, send us an email, martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com.
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK, on the TSX Venture Exchange. Rockridge Resources is a new public mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada. Grant, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alice. Good to be here. For those that are just joining us for the very first time and hearing about Rockridge, give us a brief overview of the company.
7: Yeah, Rockridge is a relatively new company. We're focused on advancing our core gold project and our core copper project, both projects located in mining-friendly jurisdictions and in jurisdictions that have proven geologic potential.
0: And today you You are announcing your drill program,
7: correct? Yeah, that's right. We're announcing that we've just commenced drilling at our Rainy Gold Project. And this project is a high-grade gold project located southwest of prolific Timmins Gold District. You can drive to the drill site in under two hours from Timmins on paved and secondary roads. Excellent infrastructure and access. And what we're doing is revisiting a drill site that was drilled about 10 years ago when gold was trading at about $900 an ounce. And the intercept that was returned back in those days was 6.5 grams per 10 gold over 8 meters. And we're going to follow up on that and extend that at depth and along strike. So it's a great exploration project, and it's well-timed with the strong interest in gold we're seeing lately.
0: And there's fairly easy access
7: to the gold itself. Yeah, that's exactly right. This high-grade intercept that we're going to follow up on that's open for expansion, it was drilled at about the 100 meters subsurface from surface, so 100 metres deep from surface. And the reason it wasn't followed up back in the day 10 years ago was that gold was trading at a much lower level, so lesser interest in gold. And also, the drilling would have had to set up on some small bodies of water to follow up on the intercept. So today, fast-forward ahead 10 years, and we've got the site ready to go. The drill is just around. Over the weekend, so we'll get in and follow up on this intercept and look to expand it.
0: That's pretty exciting. So, any idea of when we might be able to see some early results? What does that look like?
7: We'll get the first three or four holes done right on this core main zone that we've discussed with this high grade intercept, and then the rock will be sent off to the assay lab. So, it'll be a few weeks' time before you get the first results, but there'll be a period of active news flow certainly over the next several weeks and next couple months for this project.
0: Let's review the share structure of the
7: company. We've got 34 million shares outstanding, a nice tight capital structure. We're relatively new public company and we'll keep a good eye on the share structure and be very aware of future share issues because we realize that's one of the attractive aspects of our exploration company.
0: I understand you've developed a new geological model. Can you discuss that with us? We've spent
7: several months while we were preparing for this drill program at Rainy, reviewing all of the historic data and this included limited drill data, geophysical data, surface mapping and trenching and the historic data outlined about a 400 meter long shared alteration zone which is over open on either end. And the historic operators envision this as a structure that dips steeply north. And our work has suggested that perhaps the structure dips steeply southward. And so what this does for us is it opens up the strike potential or the along trend potential, as some of the earlier drilling may have missed the target zone. And it also provides for better continuity of our gold-bearing zones. So we're excited to get in and test this new geologic model. And that is part of our early work on this program. We'll be drilling and assessing
0: this new model. Well, Grant, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for bringing this news to our attention. I look forward to future conversations. Cheers. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. For more information on Rock Ridge Resources, go to the company's website, Rock Resources LTD.com. I'm Ellis Martin.
3: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter, it's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the President and Chief Science Officer of Zicha Genesis Medicine, Dr. Jack Jacobs. Strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, brain injuries. These are just some of the major afflictions that have affected someone that we know or have known, people close to us. It's inescapable in this thing that we call life. Most often we lose these family members or friends. And again, many of them survive to live out a slow death or debilitation. Quoting from the company's website, zgm.care, Zhitya Genesis Medicine's drug development has led them to a possible treatment for those diseases and more, growing new blood vessels in the human body, a process referred to as angiogenesis, FGF-1 is a potent growth factor with just that ability. By growing new blood vessels in the human body, Zitya believes that FGF-1 could reverse the root causes of those diseases. Jack, welcome back to the program. Good to be back, Alice. I was talking with your CEO, Dan Montano, last week, and we didn't cover it in our interview, but I understand that you've been an advocate for using the FGF 1 drug that Zicha produces for depression. Please explain how that works. Okay.
8: Be happy to. Yes, I think for over 20 years now, our drug, which is the FGF1, is in the literature. There's tens of papers that talk about its role in chronic depression. So, depression is probably the most prevalent and life threatening form of mental illness we have. Over 20% of people in the world are depressed, and even in the United States, we have about 20 million people that suffer from depression. In the U.S., I'd say about 2 million of those, 10% suffer from a very severe form of chronic depression, what's called a major depressive disorder. And there's lots of data in the literature that FGF1, our drug, is depressed, severely depressed in the brains of those people with chronic depression. So I started looking around just recently at some more recent papers, and remarkably, with these more powerful imaging systems, what's called functional MRI, you can actually look at blood flow in the brain and look in very discrete areas. And when those studies look at people with major depression or chronic depression, it's remarkable. There's a significant decrease in blood flow in those areas of the brain that are known to affect emotion, mood, areas in front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus. These are all areas that are well known to be involved in depression. So, our thinking is that there is lack of blood flow, a lack of capillaries, which they see in these areas. Our drug, we know, can stimulate that. In animal models of stroke, animal models of Parkinson's disease, we see an increase of blood flow in the areas that are affected in those diseases. So, why not try it in chronic depression? These people who have chronic depression sometimes benefit from antidepressive medications or behavioral therapy, but, you know, invariably they relapse and fall back into chronic depression, which severely affects, you know, their profession lives, their social lives, their personal lives. So our feeling is, why not give it a shot in a small proof-of-concept trial? And so we're going to move ahead, hopefully sometime later this year, and submit something to regulatory agencies in the U.S. and perhaps other countries to try a pilot study in patients with chronic depression.
0: So really, it's a matter of blood flow in the brain that can contribute to chronic depression, even hereditary issues?
8: No one's quite sure what causes chronic depression. People who are under stress often get depressed. And when you look in the brains of stressed individuals, you see, yes, you see lack of blood flow, lack of smaller capillaries in those areas that are affected by chronic depression. And you also see less FGF-1. So we know the brain is the biggest source of FGF-1. It's there in highest quantity, so it must be doing something. And if it's down in chronic depression, that's probably not natural. So we hope by boosting the levels of FGF-1 in the brain that this could lead to perhaps increased blood flow by stimulating new capillary growth, which is called angiogenesis, and that again we know is coupled in the brain to the growth of new neurons. So perhaps new neuronal growth in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex may be involved in reversing these symptoms of chronic depression. We can't guarantee that, but certainly if we don't look, we're not going to find out.
0: I think I know the answer, but how does this technology differ from standard antidepressants?
8: Antidepressants mainly are small molecules that can affect what are called neurotransmitters. So it can kind of re- affect the chemical balance in the brain, which is known In chronic depression to be off, for example, the molecule serotonin is involved in mood and depression. So regulating the amounts of that small molecule can affect mood and emotion.
0: Would this be a lifelong treatment? In other words, would you be required to take the drug on a regular basis for the rest of your life, or would it be like other applications? I imagine perhaps a six-week or a two-month type of treatment, and then you're good to go. Do we know?
8: We would be testing that in our clinical trials. I think we would look first at a six-week treatment and then see how the patients do. You're correct in other areas where we've treated humans with this product. We get a response that is durable. We grow new blood vessels in the heart of patients that have coronary artery disease. Those vessels stay working for years. So be hoping for a similar response in and- patients with these brain disorders such as chronic depression. But again, that's what we would learn in conducting these clinical trials.
0: Can I ask you what drew you to this particular aspect of FGF-1-1? Why depression? Why has this become sort of a passion of yours from what I understand?
8: You know, we've been given the green light to test our drug in Parkinson's
0: disease, and we're going to move ahead with that study in
8: Mexico. And just looking into Parkinson's disease, 40%, 40% of people with Parkinson's disease have chronic depression. So it's something which is called a comorbidity or co-presenter. And we've noticed in some preliminary studies we've done with our heart patients who also present with about 30% of them present with chronic depression. They were reporting they felt better, that after taking the drug, not only were we seeing changes in the vasculature in their heart, but they were reporting, not all of them, but some of them, improved mood. So we think there's something there. We don't know for sure, but if we could decrease chronic depression in Parkinson's patients, in patients with diabetes, heart disease, that would be a very useful use of our drug. We're going to be looking at that in our ongoing clinical trials and all our applications, whether it be Parkinson's disease, heart disease. We're going to have markers of mood, emotion, depression in all of those trials. So we're going to have a lot of readouts coming up in our future clinical trials, not only in chronic depression, but in these other diseases where chronic depression often co-presents.
0: Jack, you and Dan are often on the road presenting the story to potential investors, to potential patients, to potential friends of patients. When is your next trip?
8: We are heading out to New York City in about a week. We're going to be there for three days in Brooklyn talking at a investors meeting. And then we're heading down to Florida, to West Palm Beach. There's another show there called The Money Show, but we are giving also some Parkinson's disease presentations you know, around that investment conference. So we'll be talking to support groups. And we're going to be talking about not only the potential for a treatment for Parkinson's disease, but also talk about this newer finding of Chronic depression, because again, 40% of people with Parkinson's have this depression. So we'll be spreading the word and we're getting a lot of good feedback. We have people sign up at our website to look at the clinical trials that we're going to be doing. There's been a lot of interest in this new white paper we put out on chronic depression.
0: Well, Jack, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to further chats in the future. And thank you for taking the time to discuss something as prevalent in our society and our world. One in five people, according to what you right. just said, have chronic depression. Thanks again. Yeah. Now, happy to talk to you, Ellis, and you have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Jack Jacobs, the President and Chief Science Officer of ZCHA Genesis Medicine. Find Gicha on the web at zgm.care. That's zgm.care. I'm Ellis Martin.
3: Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
0: Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Visit ellismartinreport.com.